Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, brought to you by Calabra. Today, happy birthday to this series. This podcast began seven years ago this week after an arm twisting by Joe Rogan. Now we enter the eighth year with a new episode every Saturday. The reason it keeps going is because loyal listeners download it every week, and then share their enthusiasm on social media. So we're consistently in the top 50 of iTunes Life Sciences in the same league as big productions by BBC or CBS or uh, larger media conglomerates. Uh, So thank you, thank you, thank you for your loyalty. The funny part is I still get emails almost every week that say, I can't believe I never knew of this before. I've got a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) All the time. And so something is still broken. I I think we can do this a little better. So I'm going to ask you for a favor. Could you please take a more active role in amplification? So what do I mean by that? Modern communication takes two steps. It takes content creators and then amplifiers. Content creators make this stuff like the Talking Biotech podcast. It reaches more people from retweets, shares, and, you know, even a conversation at the water cooler for those of you who are less electronically inclined. I'm sure some of you out there in science, I know that. So going into year eight, let's take this to a new level. I'll be including some broader content for larger audiences in, in addition to the geeky details we've always discussed. But please retweet, share, put it out there. Do what you can to use your conduits and your networks to share this media because that's how we grow. And it's important to grow because I think we got a good product that's uh, helping people understand the science and the current issues around biotechnology and broader science in general. So thank you for listening and on to today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. Now, as most of you know, I'm a practicing researcher in molecular biology and genomics, not just a podcast host. And I've made a career around using novel strategies to answer important questions in biology. And one of the most gratifying parts of the job is when I read a new paper and they cite my work, expanding and even reinforcing those previous findings. It isn't really nervousness about, you know, maybe I was wrong. Some of our best work has been born from hypotheses that didn't pan out. So that's good. It's about seeing the findings add to the tapestry of the understanding of science, that good science grows and seeds new avenues of discovery for other laboratories. But over the last few years, there there has been more and more question about the reproducibility of some of the high-profile work that's been in our best journals, and a lot of discussion around maybe our science isn't as reproducible as it used to be. There's been a lot of questions about the integrity of research and a lot of questions about fraud, misconduct. And how do we go back to a place where, or how do we achieve a place or get to a place where we know we can trust the peer review process or the, whatever process we use 
to ensure that the public understands science, but also that the public trusts the science that's been found. And so today we're going to talk with Tim Arrington. He's the Senior Director of Research at the Center for Open Science, and we'll discuss this topic. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a really good idea. I really appreciate learning more about the center and how it contributes to public trust around science. And let's start out with the problem. What is the evidence that suggests the current system of peer review is broken and that we need to have some sort of improvement in, in the way that we're vetting scientific findings? Sure. I, th- I think of this as kind of a tiered question. So there's some parts that you mentioned it in your introduction where there's concerns about fraud, right? Some people fabricating things. And and it's hard for peer review to catch all of that if somebody makes it up. There's some clever people out there. That's not really what the Center for Open Science is concerned with, but it is definitely a concern. I think another thing that you mentioned is mistakes. We're humans, right? Science is done by humans and humans make mistakes. and, And sometimes it takes a while to catch those mistakes. So this is where you get like retractions or, or corrections come out of that. I think the pandemic showed us that, that that happens with peer review, without peer review. Then there's what I think you probably want to get into more, which is this question about, oh, the studies aren't reproducible. And, and related to that would be that they're not transparent or open enough to understand if you can actually be able to replicate or reproduce what someone else did. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of growing evidence and in all of those spaces, right? There's a lot of work where one of those those groups that have been contributing to this, I just finished one up in uh, preclinical cancer biology, which is my own background, trying to replicate, reproduce somebody else's work and running into challenges in terms of just understanding, well, what did they do in the first place? And then, of course, when we actually attempted to do it, not being able to actually understand all of the, the details and the methods and getting similar results was definitely a challenge for us. So is it really boiled down to people not being complete in their methods or not being conscious of, you know, small details that make something truly reproducible? I think it boils down to what is the basis for how we communicate and where that incentive is. So the way we communicate as scientists is through academic papers, and those papers don't don't actually focus on what you just said. They focus on what you found, not necessarily how you found it. And so I think it's really it's a challenge for, for researchers to do that, especially when you're trying to write down methods after the fact versus just kind of being able to somehow show what we did during the process. And so methods and papers tend to be quite sparse. They tend to lack a lot of the detail. And I think that is part of the problem. The other part of it is that the journals, right, as you know, in peer review, people like positive, clean narratives, and science doesn't look that way. And so there's a, there's a little bit probably unconscious factor going into this. I mean, there's, like I said, fraud is the conscious part, but I think the majority of it's unconscious, whereas researchers, we're just trying to publish exciting findings. And what we might be doing is, is distorting that view and distorting what we, what we know about how we actually found those exciting findings. Oh, I, I agree with that a thousand percent. I mean, how many times I've said to people in my laboratory, you know, sometimes putting a paper together is like making sausage. You know, you, you, <laughs> you have all the parts and all the little snips and pieces and you put it together in a way that works. And it wasn't necessarily the flow that got us from A to B as the researchers, but it's the one that makes the best story and makes it best to communicate to a scientific audience. So I could see how things could get mixed up in there a little bit. 
Yeah, I think you I think you nailed it on the head, right? We we write papers to ourselves, right? Human to human. And so we like clean stories naturally. Think of any novel you write or any other news story. So I think you're hundred percent right. And and we tend to craft a narrative, not necessarily the way we found it. I think the challenges we get is it's slippery slopes, right? So a good example of that would be imagine in your lab you have somebody doing a whole bunch of experiments and then in the paper to make a clean story, you only report part of those, right? The ones that fit neatly into a narrative. Narrative and you exclude, you know, the experiments that didn't quite fit, either because they don't fit, which is sometimes how it happens, or you don't understand how it fits. And so what happens is you've 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 accidentally distorted the narrative because you didn't yeah, actually it, show everything. And, and I understand that too. And that's something that you know, of course, we wouldn't try to do if we had some data that didn't fit. We would include those data and say these data we can't understand how they make these relatable, and a reviewer would probably flag that and say, well, if you can't show how the dots connect, then why are you showing the dots? And so it doesn't seem just like it's an author, you know, scientist problem. It's with the review system that I want to put it out there because either someone else may interpret it differently or in the scope of their own understanding of the research question, maybe it kind of, maybe it does, maybe it's the connector, you know, maybe it's something that connects what they do to what I do. So it, it does make the question of scientific publishing really difficult. So how do we fix that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I could not agree with you more that when, when we think about where the, the challenge lies, it doesn't lie. I actually don't believe it lies necessarily with the research. I think that's the wrong place to put it. I think it's the system around it. It's the journals, it's the funders, it's the institutions. So I'll, I'll go again from an example from a large scale, this large scale replication project we just finished in preclinical cancer biology. Some of the challenges we had weren't even around these narratives per se. They were around just being able to say, well, can you show all the methods and the materials, right? The reagents you used and the data that you found, can you share that with me now that the paper has been published? Because it's not published with the paper, right? The paper is more of a postcard for what actually occurred. We're asking for the details of what was presented in those figures. And they weren't able to do that. Right, the, the researchers weren't able to do it, not because they didn't want to do it. It's because the system didn't support them for it. Right, the institution didn't really support all of them with good data management. For example, the journals didn't really, or the peer review system didn't really enforce that that had to be shared, even though it could have. Right, we have in a digital age, it's quite easy to share this type of data. I mean, it wasn't being enforced all the time, or reagents weren't being put in repositories or commercial places where people could buy and use them again. So the system, I think, is actually what's kind of failing, and the researcher is just the one that's being kind of stuck in it. And so I definitely found that in the project that we did. And, and, and so I completely agree with you. And it's not, I think that's actually the challenge, which is it's not just one group, right? It's not just, hey, journals, change your policies, that'll help. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's also funders reward that, right? And make sure you fund the ability not just to do the research, but to make sure that it's open and rigorous and reproducible at the exact same time and to give the support to do that. Same thing with the institutions. Yeah. And I think that the problem with this is that when we see stories of lack of reproducibility in the news or when it comes out, you know, just whenever it's it's addressed, it, especially around things like COVID, the folks who don't like the science use that as a as a cudgel to say, look, you, you can't trust it anyway because, you know, it's not reproducible. But I think this is the nuance. When I was I invented a technique a few years ago, a few decades ago now that we used frequently and that other people would try to use and could not get it to work. And it wasn't that it 
didn't work or that it was something that couldn't be done. It worked in my hands every time that we had to have Skype calls <laughs> right. where we would do the, we would do the procedure together and I would catch those little nuances or have people come to my lab and spend a couple of days and then we would figure it out. But you know, this idea of reproducibility is, is something that new technology can really help us do better at, especially with respect to methods. Oh, couldn't agree more, right? And actually, so when we think about, right, if something's not reproducible, right, it fails to replicate, the, there's there's a handful of things that could be at play. Um, and I'm going to, again, ignore the ones where it's bad actors, that fraud one. That's definitely there, but I'm going to ignore that for a moment. You have the, the original's wrong, right? It's just this very black and white, you know, conclusion. The original paper that made that, you know, exciting finding, they're wrong. They did something wrong. They just, it's an artifact. Or you tried to replicate it. Well, you did it all wrong. So that's not true, right? But I think that actually the, the answer is where you just got. The more, the more likely answer is they're both right and we don't understand why. And that's actually why trying to make our work reproducible, why replication, why actually having more openness in it and letting other other researchers, other people kind of interrogate it is not to discredit, in my opinion, it's to better understand. It's, it's right, right on what you said. Okay, well, I told you what I believed was necessary to do it, but there's so many factors at play. Maybe we're missing something. So let's do it together or let's document more because maybe I'm focusing on the wrong thing. And we hope that it's something exciting, right? We hope it's some new, exciting, you know, discovery about the world around us. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a technical glitch. But the only way to, to do that is to actually interrogate it. And, and maybe I can give another example just for just for the listener is that there are other overlays that vary from one laboratory to the other. And meaning that in, in my laboratory and in, in the experiment I did, when we harvested those seedlings and those nuclei right at, you know, at first thing in the morning, the data come out very different than if you do it in the afternoon. And even though you're doing the same experiment and you're doing the same everything, there's maybe some sort of circadian influence or some sort of other influence that's keeping the data separate. And it never got into your materials and methods because you never said, well, our lights went on and off at this particular time. And then here's where we did the experiment. Yet that may be a important, an important gate that dictates the final outcome. And why that's important to note is because now we would discover that that particular influence if two groups did influence, uh, did interrogate the data at two different times or did gather the resource at two different times. And this would allow us to discover those new edges of maybe some other kind of influence as to why the data were incongruent. And so if you trust both sets of data, it gives us an opportunity to really look at it carefully and say, okay, I trust this, I trust this, why are they different? And it usually means the answer is much more complicated than we originally thought. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you can keep going on that thread because the way, right, science, no single finding, no study, no paper is, is definitive, right? Science is a, is a process. It's not, you know, it doesn't, you can't have some exciting finding and be like, that's it. That's what we do. That's said and over with. It's, it's just a step in the process. And you hope that everyone wants and for it to keep building, right? Somebody else can take it and build it, right? We, we, are, we are gathering knowledge. But sometimes the best way to go forward is the way you just described it is you sometimes have to go a little bit backwards. And when really what you do is you have to ask this bigger question, which is, all right, well, does the evidence keep pointing towards us on building? Even if we're taking some steps backwards, are we getting a better understanding of both the specifics of what's necessary, but also that it's robust to the variations, right? There are so many variations that in the lab, we attempt to control them, but we're hoping that we can understand something more fundamental than that, even if it is complex. 
or when you keep having more and more groups interrogate that, you realize that actually it's very, very specific and the utility of it starts to fall away. So it doesn't mean that it's not reproducible. It just means that the generalizability of it, right, the utility of it has, has started to, to crumble a little bit just because it's very narrow in the, the, you know, the situation that it's applied for. So take like your example, right? If, if there's something exciting about the differences there, it helps us understand the, the overall biology of it and what, what we can actually learn from it. But if it turns out it's something that actually narrows it and it's not useful anymore or not as broadly useful, we might not invest as much resources in it. Again, neither of those tell you it's quote unquote right or wrong. It's, it's this process that I think is really, really important to remember. And do you think that the modern publication environment really fostered this? Because back when I started in science in the late 80s, you had a conversation that took place in the literature and you frequently saw papers that were three figures that, that just kind of incrementally moved the science forward. And you almost had this conversation that was happening between different scientific groups that would build on each other versus now you have, you know, to publish in a, in a marquee journal, they want 13 figures, 36 supplementary tables. You know, it, it's such a, they want a complete story now. So instead of having a conversation in the literature, it tends to be like we drop this entire conclusion into the literature and you know, almost like it is a dead end. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there. There is, before I kind of answer that, I have my own little anecdote from when I was in grad school. I was, I studied telomerase biogenesis, which is really fun. And there's some really cool early papers in the, the 90s for me. And these are like, sci- these are the big journals, right? Science, this was the science nature papers that I'd read. And it was, it was just like you said, one, two, three figures max, you know, really elegant assays, but not a lot of data. It was all about the methods. And I remember reading even in those journals, the, the methods, they were one of them, they were talking about the blender that they were using to kind of grind the tissue to eventually extract the enzyme. And it was super detailed. They told you all this info about the blender, right? In order for you to really understand how to do it. <laughs> you don't, we don't do that anymore, right? Nothing, right? We just say spin. You're lucky if somebody tells you to spin something, right? And so I think you're absolutely right. We've gone over this idea that, well, if we just overwhelm you with information and data, that that's sufficient versus recognizing that it is this conversation. And again, remembering that these journal articles are really for the scientists to, to just communicate as scientists that actually the the details are behind it. And I think that's something that, especially in the current system of, of the way that we can digitally talk, even right now, we're not leveraging that as much as we should in research. And I think we need to kind of remember that the publication system was novel at the time, and it's maybe not so novel, and it needs to get a little bit more of innovation to be able to really harness the digital age that we're in. Yeah, really good point. And how much of a lack of reproducibility is due to fraud? You know, I don't know that question. It's a good one. I secretly hope it's very small. It drives me nuts to think people do this because I'm like, why are you to go do something else? Why are you in, in science if you want to just make up stuff? So I don't I don't actually know the percent. It depends on, on how you estimate or what groups you kind of go to to get those estimates. Um, I, there's a lot of attempts to have checks and balances on that. And there's also some great people that are doing it. I think, sadly, it's probably higher than we think because people are quite clever. So hopefully it's in the, the sub 1% range. But I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think it is pretty low, but I think it happens on a very consistent basis. I think that there's a lot of with tenure and promotion and the push to publish or perish and with some some countries even incentivizing publication in marquee journals with financial rewards 
it seems almost like it sets it up for there to be abuse of that system. And I mean, there's, like you say, there's some people who are out there who make their lives work finding this stuff, but even when they find it, 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 nothing happens. There's, there's no big apology, no big, usually these people are fighting back against the whistleblowers. So how much, you know, in, in the parlance of public trust, how much, how damaging really is it? You know, I think it is damaging only in the sense that it shows that the system itself does have these flaws and that we have to be very careful. So I think there's a little bit of damage that occurs there. At the same note, I think actually we can do a better job of really not trying to like highlight it, but but recognize that that's actually the whole point of the scientific process. It's not a it's not a trust me enterprise. It's a show me enterprise and it's self-correcting. And if we want to be self-correcting, we have to show it and do it out in the open and hope that that's the process that still does it. I do think it it shows the ugly side of, of, of science, which is all the human motivations. You just listed them all, right? It's and, and which is, by the way, some of it's natural. It's just the bad actors that are going there and kind of skirting around it. Money, right? You know, prestige. These are the things that, that actually are driving it. And I think it's just a slippery slope, again, where people want to be able to be successful in their career. If it's not, they're not getting the results, which by the way, as researchers, we do not control the results. We control the questions and the methodology that, you know, the outcomes are what they are, or at least that's how it's supposed to be. I think it's, I can imagine why people maybe go down that route, right? They're like, oh shoot, in order to get my next grant, in order to get my job or keep my job, I need to get this exciting finding. And I know the uh, this exciting paper, this exciting grant. And the only way to do it is to make a very neat, clean story. And I think you just have some people that go too far and just make it. The problem that makes it persist though, that you talked about is we as researchers still, we have a hard time correcting, right? We talk about the literature being self-correcting, but when you see that a paper gets retracted, it still tends to get cited a lot. So again, however much you want to value citation, papers that are retracted still get cited at a very high rate, which is when you think about it, it should stop happening, right? We're supposed to say, oh, no, wait, don't cite that paper anymore, but people still cite them. Yeah, it still happens. And you know, just to your point, I think it makes for very non-creative science because I can say this, and I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but we go into so many hypotheses in my laboratory that we do the tests and we get the data back and we go, this doesn't support what we thought. It, and what it, and so it means we really underthought the question. And then when we go back and we look at it again, maybe do another experiment or two, we find out that the real answer is much more interesting than what we thought it would be. And so this was really the, that's what we lose when people are starting with a conclusion and going backwards. I'll completely agree with you. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to have uh, the thought that somebody could just, you know, craft their own narrative and make a compelling story is nice. But if it was, if it was that simple, I don't think we'd be doing the research personally. I think you want it to be really hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very true. So we're talking about reproducibility in science, and we're talking about the factors that influence and its effect on public trust in science and how we can maybe make the system better. We're speaking with Tim Arrington. He's the Senior Director of Research at the Center for Open Science. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. 
C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Tim Arrington. He's the Senior Director of Research at the Center for Open Science. And in the first part of the podcast, we talked about the problem of reproducibility and possibly some of the motivations that come about. But what is the big effect on public trust and, and where does that manifest? Yeah, I think so. To me, the effect on public trust is about how we can demonstrate how the public should trust the research and how it should trust the research is not where it's being published or the fact that, you know, some famous researcher or at some famous institution did it, but it's the process. They have to be able to trust a process. And I think the key to that is to get back to what is the part that you should trust. Is it the peer review part? Maybe, maybe not. There is, I think there is a lot of Pew has done some studies to suggest that there is a lot of need to make sure that there's independent review. I'm a big fan of it as well. But it's, it doesn't have to stop there. I think the trust is also that we as researchers share, right? That we share our data, we share our reagents, we share our methods, and that we are able to be open to counter evidence to what we presume we think is going on. Even if it's, even if it's you know, against our own, you know, models, that our favorite pet models, if it turns out that Maybe our evidence supports something different. We have to be able to update it. You were just talking about that before the break. And I think that's the way that the public needs to, to trust, which is we need to demonstrate those scientific ideals, which is really the process that I think we're all taught early in middle school, right? Which is what is science all about? That's right. And in one that we still don't build into people enough, <laughs> despite it being a middle school thing. And, and I, the thing that always helps me the most is to think, I don't have to be right, but I have to be not wrong. <laughs> and I think that's two very important things. So um, how much of the process do you think is clouded by things like predatory journals? I think that has a little bit to do with it. Again, the fact that we even have predatory journals is, is demonstrating the, the problems that uh, the system is kind of imposing on us. You know, I don't know, I don't know how much that is. I think, I think that's part of the problem. I think the bigger problem personally for me is more about, doesn't matter what journal you're in, it's more about where, what you value. So the fact that we value a journal publication, maybe that's the problem. And that allows the predatory journals to exist instead of recognizing that well, actually, maybe what we should recognize is, is in addition to the journal publication is that you shared the data and that other people were able to reuse it, that you shared your reagents and that somebody else was able to take it and move in a new direction. Like those artifacts, we tend not to value as much. And I think that's part of what's causing this. So how do we solve this problem through the Center for Open Science? Yeah, so that's a great question. And let me give you a little bit of background of, of what we're trying to do um, at the Center so there's a couple different activities that we do. And again, trying to recognize that the way that we approach it is twofold. One, this is a systems level approach that we're taking. It's not just one, not just researchers that we need to support or shift. It's also the journals, the funders, the societies. But also to recognize that the Center for Open Science, we're just one of many actors within the space, right? The decentralized sciences, decentralized conducting replication studies or looking and interrogating the way that we both conduct and, and share scientific findings and trying to figure out, well, where is there inefficiency in the system? How can we improve it? And if we try different ways, are there any risks that come along with it? 
so that's a really I love it. It's actually been really exciting for me to kind of take a big step back from the bench and to look at it a little bit more holistically. But I can't you can't just study it, right? You, I mean you can, but you can't in order to make progress, you can't just study it. You have to be able to also make the change within it. And so a couple things that we do is one is to leverage the fact that again we're in a digital tech digital age and there's technology that can support openness and reproducibility and rigor so we maintain and build uh, open source software to help researchers share their data or their methods or their protocols or do techniques called something called pre-registration which is basically uh, similar to clinical trials right you register your trial before you do it and then no matter what you find you report on those outcomes so we're trying to encourage these types of rigor and openness practices to try to increase the trust in the science and the science scientific process. So actually enabling it through infrastructure. And again, we're connecting with other groups that are doing the same thing. The other piece of it is also making sure that we work with those incentives. And so that's a really important thing to consider. And there's a couple different main activities that we do. What I lead is the research effort. There's a number of, of what we call ourselves as meta-scientists, science of scientists. So again, we're humans as scientists. We're driven by those journal publications. Well, maybe we can both broaden the scope. It's more than just the journals. It's also the data and other artifacts that you can share and make open. But maybe you can also align those journal policies with the incentives you want. So that's great. It's about how creative your research is or how innovative it is. But let's also make sure it's how open and rigorous it is at the same time. Uh, so those can be factors that we can also do. So essentially shifting those incentives to align with the values that we that we want to do. Now, I really like this. So if you have a pre-registration process for an experiment or for, let's just say, the, the what will be published, you kind of set it up where you know that the, the data will be there, whether the hypothesis is supported or not. So does it really provide a venue for us to be able to publish, you know, in quotes, negative data? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you're going on this right thread. So when we think about the, the main contribution that we do as scientists, it's really is our ideas when we stop and think about it. Our, you know, the methodology and the outcomes are just a manifestation of that. So this concept of pre-registration saying, all right, well, this is what I'm going. This is my, my hypothesis. This is my research question. This is the way I'm going to go about doing it. One of many ways. And I don't know what the outcome is, but if I can pre-register that, then I've essentially staked one, a claim, which is this was my idea. This is how I thought about it. So, hey, everybody, like, look what I did. Look, what, look at my contribution. So I think you were right to, to say that word publication because that is, that is a form of publication. It's just on the idea and the methodology opposed to the outcome. And then you're absolutely right, which is it allows broader dissemination of all findings, regardless of whether they're exciting and positive or whether they're that kind of boring but important mundane part of research, which is there get a lot of null results. Well, and, and very important results. I wish that we had a, something, I wish that this existed already in a really big invisible way because how many experiments are repeated that we would not do because we knew that they would not either be feasible or would not yield uh, any interesting data? You know, or would 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 kind of just reinforce the same old story. You know, the things that we think are transformative that turn out to be mundane and really not worth publication publication because someone else did it already. Or in which case it would show reproducibility, you know, which would be a real nice thing, too. So I really like this idea. Are there other examples of tools or software that you could talk about which would be enabled through Center for Open Science? Yeah. So another thing that we do, and we're not alone here as well, is enabling preprints. So again, if you can recognize that another form of, of communication, including those null results, are 
submitting them as a preprint before publication. I think BioArchive and MetaArchive are obviously ex- excellent examples, but really broadening that to as many disciplines as possible is something else that we try to do. And that, I think, allows what we've seen in the pandemic is faster dissemination. And it allows a different form of peer review, which is you can still have that traditional peer review to get you into a journal for whatever those selective criteria are for that journal. But it enables a more public discussion over, well, what are these initial findings? And maybe I can begin to improve that because, again, research is an iterative process. And so we enable that as well. Again, having enabling communities to kind of develop their own preprint guidelines in order to, to kind of foster that in different areas that, you know, current preprint communities don't have. Yeah, I, I think that's really clever. And I, I love it because uh, the reason I like preprints, I like to read them, but I also really like to read them in controversial areas because you find so many of them like around COVID or genetic engineering that they end up in the preprint server, but never are published formally. And that's really informative too, because it tells us that this did not survive the rigor of peer review. And so there's a lot of other good meta information we get from preprint servers like that. So is there utility in preprint servers that actually help the authors get more information from the public in kind of pre-peer review to shape the manuscript? Yeah, there are a couple ways to do that. So one, obviously, it's it's open access. So that's probably one of the biggest things is, is the public, anyone can get access to it. On OSF, on the OSF preprints we have, we enable a tool called Hypothesis that lets people um, comment on it. So you can actually begin that dialogue, right? So if, if those aren't familiar with the tool Hypothesis, you can basically highlight a specific text within the PDF that's being displayed. And you can actually just start to write comments. You can, you can start to actually create this kind of public ledger to, to discuss and communicate with it. There's, there's one more thing that we do also we've been working on and, again, trying to work with others because it's a, I think it's a, this ecosystem approach, which is really trying to rethink how you assess credibility in the first place. So preprints, I think, really is a great test bed for this. I think normally it's probably perceived on, one, it's been peer-reviewed, or two, it's been peer-reviewed and it's in this certain journal, right? This prestigious selective journal, but that's conflating quality with selectivity, which is not really the right way to do it. So instead you, you, when you put it preprints, you put it back into the researcher's hands and you can kind of reinvent that system. And so we've been doing some author assertions about, well, was this study, you know, was the paper, any experiments where they pre-registered is the data open, right? What is your conflict of interest? You can actually start to have these other indicators of trust that also enable the public to dis- to kind of get in a conversation about it, to start to learn, actually, I think the important parts, which is, well, how, how do I know to trust anything? And, and in the end, you, you do have to start to see these other indicators of trust. Now, that's really good because there's a lot that you can clear up ahead of time, especially with conflict of interest. And especially if you're able to clear that up and get out in front of it, it really does separate conflict of interest from misconduct, which are two really important differences that the public isn't clear on. And I think that's a really, really important point. In terms of how this is all funded, though, how how is the Center for Open Science funded? Right. So we've been around since 2013. So we're a nonprofit, just to make that clear to folks. And our funding largely comes from a couple different sources, some philanthropic groups. So the Arnold Ventures, Sloan, those those types of groups have funded us uh, and still do fund us. The Templeton Foundations fund us. But we also apply for research grants. So we essentially look like an academic institution ourselves as well. So we get you know grants from NSF or NIH or the Department of Defense in the U.S. So we have a lot of research grants that fund us. And I'd say the last part there is 
individuals who also support us. So we get individual donations, including many people who use our, our infrastructure, the OSF. There's a lot of users, researchers that will either write stuff into their grants or they'll donate to us, which is wonderful because essentially I think it's one of these great systems where we we very much are, we see ourselves as a public good service uh, back to the research community and the broader public community. And it's wonderful to see that engagement right back into it. I think of it just like, not just to just we are this at this level yet, but I think of it as NPR as well. It's a, right, a public service and that if people like to use it, they can help support it and maintain it. All right. Well, let me just kind of maybe wrap up with this. If you could wave a magic wand and create the publication ecosystem that you think would be the best at ensuring trust and reproducibility, what might that look like? Oof, I need a big wand. All right. <laughs> let me I'll give you I'll give you some ideas on this. So I think one is to disconnect a couple things. I think the ideal system is to allow researchers to be able to share among researchers and disseminate those findings without those without those barriers. So preprints essentially really pushing on that as as the true dissemination of that's how researchers communicate it and that's like how we can actually kind of build the system back of you know enabling not just the papers but linkage to all of those artifacts that are important, right? The methods that we, everything we're talking about, methods, reagents, code, data. So having that base infrastructure to allow the researchers just to sh- to share with each other freely. It's the whole point of preprints. But I think the ideal system doesn't stop there. The ideal system still says peer review is important, right? It still has a place. And selectivity of journals is not necessarily a bad thing if you can if you can turn it around a little bit. And so the way I like to think about that ideal system would be thinking of journal publications a little bit more like we think of news outlets as well, right? Where we can have the same story with the same credibility behind it, right? All the artifacts being shared in different venues. And so we can still use journals, we can still use peer review to help us understand, well, what kind of storytelling do I like or what type of area of research do I like? But we don't let it d- dictate what gets out into the to the scientific public domain, right? That that's, that's controlled and that's more freely done, that anybody can find all of the content, that anyone's able to kind of harness that and do a lot of exciting, I think, meta scientist and data science work on top of it because we're freely sharing everything right we're pre-registering our work we're sharing everything regardless of outcome and then we use peer review on top of it to help tell that narrative because again we're humans and i think we don't want to get rid of that so to me disconnecting those two would be the ideal state because it allows i think those two important parts of broad dissemination the rigor no matter what you do you don't control it as well as that kind of clean narrative that we all itch for as humans no, I love it. You know, and the other thing that really just kind of popped into my head on this is that when you look at a tenure and promotion packet at most universities, there's a section for creative works and you could really encourage uh, faculty to create videos around their methods, to demonstrate their methods in for a given paper in a video format on YouTube, or maybe do other types of more extension oriented publications that would enable others to uh, enhance or to replicate their work and show those little nuances and maybe reveal some of the things that cause lack of reproducibility. And that still counts. You know, you're, you're able to get credit for something in addition to the publication, some other kind of creative work credit. So this, this convert, I know a lot of academics listen to this podcast, think about those kinds of things because that could really be, it's another line in the, in the packet, but it also is something that could enhance the reproducibility of your work. 
Uh, absolutely. I'm so glad you went that direction because I think that's exactly the benefit of, of thinking through this, which is it's not saying get rid of the publications. It's saying open it up because that's only one piece of it. And this really allows you to demonstrate the the rigor and openness of the work behind it. And I think when we think of early career researchers, this is this is what we need, we need to do to support those that next generation of researchers that are coming in, right? We It takes a long time for them to get their papers published in a journal, but there's a ton of work that's behind it that really demonstrates the rigor of the what they're doing or what they could be showing. And I think we need to start remembering that, that this actually starts to open it up, make it more equitable for everyone as well. And you're right, it diversifies it and it allows you to tell a different narrative, which is not, look where I published my paper, but it's look how much I'm trying to make sure that everything I'm doing is having the maximal benefit it can. So it's more of this like return on investment question. No, I love it. I I think that's really great. And I hope more universities start thinking that way and maybe even enabling uh, that with uh, some kind of technical support, video support, that kind of thing, because I'm with you a hundred percent. So Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. This is something that I didn't know that I cared about as much as I do. (laughs) And it is something that going forward, you know, just this conversation really has helped me maybe be a better scientist, but maybe a better leader in science to help other faculty find ways to better disseminate their information through these types of uh, outlets. So if people wanted to find out more about the Center for Open Science, where would they look? So you can find us at our website, that's cos.io. You can also uh, find out more about us at the Open Science Framework, osf.io. And for those on social media, you can follow us at Twitter, at our handle, at O-S-F-R-A-M-E-W-O-R-K. Very good. So thank you very much, Tim, for joining me today. This is really exciting. And if anything comes up in the future that you would like to share with a broad scientific audience, please get in contact with me again, okay? Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. And of course, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We really appreciate your reviews and for you telling friends. There's two sides to this equation. There's me hosting this every week and having great guests who share their stories and their expertise. That's one side of it. The other side of the communication process is you disseminating that work and amplifying the efforts of this kind of content. Share it with friends, share it in your social media, and help this story get out so that more people can learn about the new ways that we're able to help reproducibility through these open science frameworks, as it were. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.